welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you for this book, this book that is your book. These are your very words, so that to disbelieve or disobey the words in this book is to disbelieve or disobey you. Lord, we just pray that we would be helped to stand in awe of that truth, that we wouldn't treat this like any other book, that we would just desire to dig deeply into it, to understand every word, to digest it, to internalize it, to to make it the food of our soul. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that would just rejoice over your word. We wouldn't just understand your word and appreciate it. We would rejoice over it. And so we pray, Lord, as we open your word, make your people happy in your word. And we pray, Lord, for those who are here that don't know you, that they would want a piece of that happiness, that they would want to know you, the God who is the joy of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting a new series. We're in 1 Peter, and we're going to be here for a long time. Um, for Advent, we'll probably break out of 1 Peter for a little while, but we're going to be here a long time. We're going to do two verses this morning because they're that good, okay? This series, I'm calling it Keep Going because the book of 1 Peter really is about perseverance. It's about us being able to keep going and following Jesus and being faithful to him in, in spite of adversity. Uh, this was written to people that suffer. And 1 Peter isn't really actually a book, right? It's a letter. And so this letter starts off with, like any letter, who it's from and who it's to. And so he says who it's from. He says it's from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the same Peter that you read about in the Gospels. This is the same Peter you read about in Acts. And, um, and he is one of the original 12 disciples, later called apostles. He lived with Jesus for over three years. And when we say he followed Jesus, he literally followed Jesus. Like he walked around behind him everywhere he went, lived with him, uh, lodged with him, ate with him, saw him do all his things that he did. And the amazing thing, guys, is, and I don't know how, you, like, if you guys realize this, you have a document from a person from the early 60s A.D., that knew Jesus, lived with him for years. You have that document. You have it in your lap. You have it in this letter. And it's just an amazing thing, I think, just to think back and think that God preserved that and he gave that to us, and then we can read from somebody that had that experience. And so that's what we're going to look at, where he's going to tell us what he's learned from Jesus. And he's very brief on introducing himself. He just says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then he's really long on his description of them. Kind of interesting, you know, if you had the letter and it said on the outside, in the upper left corner, it has who it's from. The two part, like, would fill up the whole front of the envelope. It reads like this. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. That's actually like who it's to. And then he says, grace and peace to you. So before he even says howdy, there's all this. This is what would be on the front of the envelope, who it's addressed to. So what he's doing is he's taking an opportunity not just to like put their names on it, but tell them who they are. Do you guys need to be told who you are? We do as Christians. We need to be told who we are. If I were to ask who are you, you'd probably maybe tell me about your occupation or what you used to do for a living, or you'd tell me about your relationships, that you're a mom, that you're a dad, that you, know, you would probably tell me maybe about some of your accomplishments or interests or sports teams or 
uh, God forbid your politics or something like that, right? You would give me something like that. But in 1 Peter verses 1 to 2, Peter's showing us that we need to see a deeper view of who we are. And that's actually a really important part of keep going. <laughs> if we're going to keep going, if we're going to persevere through trials and difficulties and sufferings, one of the most important things to know is who you are. Now, this letter was written to people in what is modern-day Turkey in the early 60s AD, so 2,000 years ago, roughly. And though it's written to them, there's nothing in this description that doesn't apply to you. Isn't that cool? Except for the locations. And I could just change those. I could say, to the, disper- to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Menifee, Paris, Nuevo, Hemet, Winchester, Temecula, Marietta, Wildemar, Lake Elsinore. It would be just as valid to do that. These descriptions of you, uh, these descriptions of them are just as valid about you. And so who are you? He says, you are fundamentally elect exiles, he says in verse 1. He says, you are elect exiles or chosen sojourners or picked um, foreigners. Or you could, you could use a bunch of different synonyms, but you're elect exiles. Now, in your translation, how many of you guys do not have the word elect or chosen in verse 1? It's okay. Totally okay. Okay. So what's going on there is, in the Greek, that word elect and exile, the word elect is right there in verse 1. But what some translations do, including King James and NASB, they moved it down either to the end of verse 1, look for it down there, or at the beginning of verse 2. There's a good reason for that. This isn't arbitrary. What they wanted to do is, in verse 2, there's, there's three phrases there, right? It says that we were um, chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, um, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus. And what the translators want to do is say, those three phrases in verse 2 all connect to the word chosen. They all connect to the word elect. Okay? They don't want you to miss that. In the Greek, it's actually up here because it actually connects to exile. So there's a choice to make. Do we put it next to exile and show them that relationship, which is valid? Or do we put it down here and connect to that? You know what the NIV does? Puts it twice. So you put it up here next to exile, and then you put it down here at the bottom. Problem solved. We just make two of them. But mine has it in the beginning. And this elect part is important. It's, it's there in the beginning of what he writes to show that's the most important thing about you. He puts it in the place of priority there. Peter wants to tell us who we are, and he says we're elect exiles. The first part I want to start with this morning, I want to look at those two. It's almost like a two-word sermon. Elect exile. If you thought of your identity with those two things, that would get you a long way. So we want to look at those two. And I want to look at the exile part first, and then we'll look at the elect part. So the exile part. This is really cool. Peter's doing something really unusual in this description. What he's doing here is he's using Old Testament Jewish terminology. And the weird part about this is is that the original readers of this, only some of them were Jews. Most of them were Gentiles. And so he's addressing this group of Christians, mostly non-Jews, and he's using Jewish terminology for them. For these Gentile Christians. He used words like elect. Think of the word elect or the word chosen. Used all the time in the Old Testament for God's Old Testament people, right? The chosen people, right? God's chosen people. God's elect people. Or this word exile, commonly used for God's Old Testament people. We can think of Abraham and he said that he said, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Or we can think about when Israel was in the wilderness wandering. They were, um, they were exiles. They were wanderers. They were foreigners. They were sojourners. They were travelers. Or we could think about when Israel was in exile in Babylon. You know, they were exiles. They were foreigners in that place. And so this is a description usually used of God's Old Testament people. And it's being applied to a church of mostly Gentiles. It's a strange thing. The other thing he does that's really interesting is he uses this word dispersion. Yours might say scattered. 
It's a Greek word, diasporas. It was a technical word that Greek-speaking Jews back then would use for any Jew that lived outside the land. Okay, So if you were a Jew from about the Babylonian captivity, which was 587 on, if you lived outside of the land of Israel, whether by choice or not by choice, you were called the dispersion, the scattered, the diaspora. And so what he's saying to this Gentile, mostly church is, you're the dispersion. Isn't that interesting? It's a really kind of artsy thing that he's doing, but it's super helpful. It's super helpful because Peter wants to help you to see yourself clearly. He wants to change your perspective on yourself. He wants you to see yourself with new eyes, right? And what he's saying is, he's saying, think of yourself like God's Old Testament people in Babylon. Think of yourself as like God's Old Testament people in exile, far from home, scattered among the nations. That's who you are. You're in exile. In fact, Peter actually uses that exact um, idea at the very end of 1 Peter. Take a look at 1 Peter 5. It won't be hard to flip there. It's just a couple pages. Um, to verse 13. And when he's sending out all these greetings from these different people, he says this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. What's he doing there? Well, there was no Babylon, really, to send greetings from at that time. It was a rubble, right? Babylon was not the city it used to be. But in the, the Jewish mindset, Babylon became associated with powerful world powers that are opposed to God. And in this time, if you look at the book of Revelation, they thought of the Roman Empire as the new Babylon. So most likely this, quote-unquote, woman that's in Babylon is most likely the church in Rome. So he's doing the same thing at the end of the letter he's doing at the beginning of the letter. He's saying, you're chosen. She's the chosen lady, just like you're chosen. And, and you're in exile, and she's in exile. And so these other exiles that are in Rome greet you. Isn't that cool? He's doing something really interesting there. And it forms kind of a, it, what they call an inclusio, a literary envelope, just to tie the whole thing together, that you are to see yourself as exiles, as those that are far from home. And so you want to think of yourself like, like Daniel and his friends in Babylon, right? That's the kind of setting you should think of yourself. You shouldn't think of yourself at home in this place. You should think of yourselves as resident aliens here. And, and the interesting thing is most of the believers that he wrote to here were not physical exiles. They probably grew up in Cappadocia and Bithynia and all those places, just like you maybe have grown up here. They weren't exiles physically. They were exiles spiritually. Do you feel like a spiritual exile? When you think about your culture and you think about the things your culture values, or you think about even some of your closest friends that, that aren't believers, do you feel the sense of exile? You're a spiritual exile. You know, from the moment that God opened your eyes to see the truth and you started to see him in a different way, you started to see yourself in a different way, you started to no longer value the things your culture values, um, you no longer believe the story they tell, right? The culture is no longer your culture and your homeland of your birth is no longer your home. Your home is another place. You're in exile. Do you feel that? Maybe that explains some of the, your feeling of perhaps loneliness or isolation or just discomfort in your own culture. It's because you've been made in exile, just like your Old Testament family was. Take a look at Hebrews 11. This is the way your Old Testament family was described. Hebrews 11:13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land in which they had gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their God, call, to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
Isn't that cool? There's a real earthly land, which is your real home, but it's a place to come. It's a place that God is going to create in the future for you. And, and we're waiting for that. And in the meantime, we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're wanderers. I, I love how C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You just feel that as Christians? That you have a desire for something that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is you were made for another world. You're in exile. Your, your land is not here. Your home is not here. And it's important that we be reminded of this because if we aren't reminded we're exiles, we're going to adopt the ways of this culture. You know, we're going to assume this is our culture. This is the way we should think. These are the rules we should follow. This is the story we should believe if we don't remember that we're exiles. Let's keep remembering that this is not our home. This is not our home. Our culture is always trying to disciple us, right? You know, we talk about discipleship in the church. The culture disciples us too. Teaches us what to value. It, it, it trains us, right? And, and if we're not seeing ourselves as exiles, we will be discipled by the culture. And guys, really, if Sunday morning is your only time of discipleship, you will be discipled by the culture. Culture has you. Culture has you through the shows that you watch. The culture has you through the news that you listen to. Culture has you through the people you're around. And unless you make a ton of effort, you will be out-discipled by the culture. It actually takes a ton of effort. And so I think it's important to think through, like, what are some of the ways the culture is trying to disciple us? Because I could, you know, ask you that. And if I ask you, what is your culture value? You, it might be like asking a fish, what does it feel like to be wet? I'm like, I don't know. What, what is your culture into? I don't know, normal stuff, right? That's the whole point, right? We don't see it. So I want to, and I think David has a, a slide for this, but I want to talk to you about a few things that are Babylon values and ways it's discipling us because we need to see them straight up. First one that, I, that our culture is discipling us in is consumerism. And by consumerism, guys, I don't mean buying stuff. What I mean is the stance towards people and groups that says, what's in this for me? right? Our culture trains us to think consumeristically about friendships. What's in this friendship for me? You know, maybe have been friends a long time, but there's not really much in it for me anymore. We, our culture has really taught us to think that way about marriage, right? Most marriages end, most, I'm not saying all, but many marriages end out of consumerism. This isn't working for me anymore. This isn't what I wanted. It's not serving my needs, right? Um, we think that way about the church, big time, right? And some churches will even pander to it, right? Go, okay, you're consumers, and we'll treat you like consumers, and we'll, you know, do all these things, and we'll do tricks, and we'll stand on our head until you're happy, right? Jesus actually discipled us not to say, what, how does this relationship benefit me, uh, but how can I serve others? Think about when you come home from work. Coming home as a consumer, not going to go well. Come home as a servant, it's going to go a lot better, right? So consumerism versus servanthood. Who's discipling you? Whose disciple are you? It's convicting, isn't it? It's interesting that when you look at things like this, you, you could be living a basically moral life and still be getting discipled by the culture in these ways, big time, okay? Next one, individualism. Our culture disciples us to say, I don't really need a daily life connected with anyone outside my own family or maybe just a few close friends. And, you know, there's some of us that are more introverted. I'm that way. But that's no excuse for being individualistic, right? Because that can kind of go like, well, I'm just an introvert. It's like, well, no, there's biblical values here that we need to follow, right? Jesus disciples us to say, I need to seek to live every day vitally connected as a member 
of a community, as an extended church family, okay? And that's something, Kenny's nodding because we're introverts, and that's, that would be our stance, is going to go more individualistically, but, but he calls us to be in community. Whose disciple are you? Next one, immediacy. Our culture says, I live, it, disciples just say, I live for now and whatever happiness I can find today. It doesn't say that? It does say that, right? I live for now, and we can have beautiful memes about this with a little picture of the beach or whatever, and everybody's like, oh, I love that, you know? Okay, I live for now and what joy I can find today. Jesus disciples us to say, I live for eternity and the joy that will never end. Mmm, right, yes. So both are looking for joy. One of them is looking for the joy that never ends. Which one's superior? Whose disciple are you? Or this one, emotion-driven. Emotions are important. They should not drive, okay? Just like a small child should not drive your car. Emotions should not drive your life. Our culture disciples us to say, when I decide what's right, I ask myself, how do I feel about this? Right? And we do that with theology, you know? Or we do that with moral issues in the culture, right? Doesn't feel right to say that's wrong, right? Doesn't feel right to come down hard on that even though the Bible does, right? We're, we are trained to say, how does this feel? Does this feel nice? Does this feel loving? Right? How does it feel? Jesus disciples us to say, what does the Bible say about this? Right? He said, if you abide in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I'm not saying we should be emotionless robots. I'm saying that the one that gets to drive is the truth. Right? The Bible gets to drive. Our emotions don't drive. You know, you see these things in the culture, you know, follow your heart and all that. Basically means follow your emotions. My question would be, I'm a very turbulent person. I would ask, which emotion? Right? If I followed my emotions, it would be completely chaotic, right? So emotion-driven versus truth-driven. Whose disciple are you? This one, you may not recognize this one, therapy, okay? I'm not saying people don't need therapy, but our culture disciples us to say, my main problems, my main problems are my weaknesses, my past, and my hurts, Okay, our, our culture disciples to say, my biggest problems are my weaknesses, my past, and my hurts. Jesus disciples us to say, my main problems are the ways I sin. Okay, because people tend to sin against those who have sinned against them, right? There's a cycle that we respond to hurts with sin. And, and so I'm not saying there's no need for therapy. I'm just saying our main problem is sin, right? Who's discipling us? How about this one? Achievement. Our culture disciples us to say, I'll know my life is worth living because of the things I've done and have. It's achievement, right? Achievement idol. I know my life's worth living because of the things I've done and I have. Jesus disciples us to say, I know my life's worth living because of the things that God's done for me and the things I have in him. You see how different that is? It's achievement versus grace. Like, is your main identity based in what God's done for you and given you in Christ or what you've accomplished and what you have. It's achievement versus grace. Achievement's a slave driver, isn't it? You'll be a slave to that. It's grace. Guys, your identity is not the sum of your achievements. Your identity is the sum of God's achievements for you, right? And so whose disciple are you? If you're being really clear here in 1 Peter, what you're going to see is that you're in exile, you know, if you resonate and you know that, you know what, like I fall into the ones on the left side, but really the ones on the right side are right. If you're the kind of person who changes as soon as, I, no, I'm just kidding around. Um, it, you're in exile, right? If you believe those, I was going to mess with David, but you weren't the one doing it. So if you're, um, if you're connecting with these on the right because they're biblical and they're true, you're in exile. Anybody that believes that's a spiritual exile, far from home. 
And so we are, verse 1, elect exiles. Now I want to get into the elect part. Okay, the word elect there, it's right there in verse 1, and it's right in the beginning. It's the first word he calls us, electos. It's easy. Greek's easy like that. It's called out, picked out, selected, right? The, the Greek word elect is that first word because it's the most important thing to you. And what's, what's fun about this, elect, exile, is those words are very opposite, aren't they? You know, one's kind of who you are horizontally with others. You're in exile. But vertically, you're chosen, you're elect if you're a believer. And so to the world, you're in exile. You don't belong. You're a stranger. You're a foreigner. You're an outsider. If you don't see yourself as an exile, you're going to conform to this world. That's why it's important to see yourself as an exile. But if you don't see yourself as elect, you're going to crumble, right? Because it's painful to be in exile. We're community people, right? It's not fun to, to not fit into your community. It's not fun to not fit into your culture. Like, we're made as herd animals. That's why the church is so important, right? Is that we do have a place where we fit in. But to not fit into the culture is not comfortable. It's painful. But guys, knowing that you're chosen by God helps an awful lot, right? Helps an awful lot. And Peter here, writing to suffering Christians, this is the way he starts the letter. He starts the letter saying, you're chosen by God. Because that helps a lot, guys. You're going to encourage somebody that's a suffering believer to show them that they are chosen by God helps a lot. Chosen, that, they're, that you're wanted, that you're beloved, that you're treasured, that you're his. Um, look at verse 2. Um, because what we're going to see here is how did we become his chosen ones? Look at verse 2 and it says, it says that we became elect or chosen, look at this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's the first point, in the sanctification of the Spirit, second point, for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. Third point. How do we become God's chosen ones, his elect exiles? And the cool thing was, is it was through a coordinated conspiracy of all three persons of the Trinity. You see them there? Each person of the Trinity did something else to capture you, to get a hold of you, to make you his. Do you see it? You see all three persons of the Trinity? You've got the Father, then the Spirit, then the Son. The one true God has always existed as three persons. And, and I know that, you know, some people go, well, that's a contradiction. Well, it's not a contradiction because there's two different categories there. There's God persons, right? One God, three persons. Um, and so God has always existed in a community of persons. And I know the Trinity is a little hard to understand. It's mysterious, which is the way God should be, by the way. So that's not surprising. Wonderfully mysterious. But it helps when you see the three persons are in relationship with each other. Those three persons have been in relationship with each other through eternity past. One God, three persons. The Trinity is also easier to grasp when we see that each one has a unique role in your salvation. Do you see that in that passage? Each one's taking a unique role. The foreknowledge of the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, obedience and sprinkling to Jesus. The Trinity makes more sense when we see how they conspire for us. What the Father planned the, the Spirit empowered, and Jesus receives. And so the Trinity isn't, you know, some of the cults and stuff will say like, oh, it was made up in the third century or whatever. Guys, the gospel doesn't work without the Trinity. Okay, and that's why when any group loses the Trinity, they lose the gospel. Because there's no way to have the gospel where, you know, G, you know, God, the Son, comes and he dies in our place. And the Spirit makes us alive to that. And the Father had ordained that. And the Father receives that as a, as a sacrifice that's acceptable to him. Like, you need more than one person to do this, right? This is something the Trinity and the gospel go together. Like, the gospel is worked out through the Trinity. And if you lose that, you lose the gospel. I would say, find me one group that's wrong on the, on the Trinity and keeps the gospel, they'll lose it. There's no way to hold them together. It's the only way it works. And so let's look at these three. First one, you're an elect exile. 
because the Father foreknew you. Look at verse 2. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because God the Father thought of you before he made the world, and he set his affections on you and planned that you would one day be his. Isn't that crazy? That's what this verse is saying. That, that the Father, um, and, he, and he not only planned, guys, that you, he would save you, but he planned how before he made the world. Because a lot of times we think, okay, he made the world, Adam and Eve fell, and God was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Like, we've got to come up with a solution to that. And so it's like, and you do the sacrificial system, oh, that didn't work, let's try something else. Like, God's not like that. He's not like constantly trying to fix, like, a broken motor. Like, it's not, it's not that way. He knew from before he created the world, he knew you, he knew exactly what you'd be like, and he, he chose you, he planned to save you, and he also planned the way of salvation before he made the world. It's trippy. I have a diagram. I can't talk for the speaker. I don't know how good the diagram is, but it's, it's mine. So, Okay, so what we have here is, check this out. So this is a timeline. It's time. You guys know that time had a beginning? You know, before creation, there was no time or space or matter. That's weird. Okay, so in eternity past, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? And within the, the Council of the Trinity, they had decided on salvation and all these things. But what this text is saying is that, that he foreknew you. So here you are with a really long neck. And... And he foresaw you, and, and he, he planned to save you, and he planned the way to save you. So you got the cross here, right? You got the cross here. He had planned to save you. This is the beginning of your life, maybe right there, right? And so he planned that before. And, and you can see that in verse 20. Check this out. Speaking of Jesus, says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That he, he thought of his son making this sacrifice before he even made the world. And, and, and you can think about this timeline, and it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing, right? Not kind of. This is very mind-blowing. And you might ask yourself about this particular arrow, him foreseeing you and planning to save you. You might ask yourself, why me? Do you think that? You should. And if you say, why me, you know what the answer is? I have no idea why he would do that. And it's not just because it's you. Like, I have no idea why he would do that for me either. No idea. Actually, did you know the Israelites actually asked that question? They said, why us? Why our nation? And in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord said this, I I didn't select you, Israel, because you were more in number than any other people. That wasn't the reason that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. Listen to this, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to the fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Notice the non-answer there. Okay, He said, I didn't love you because you were just great and powerful and amazing people. He goes, I loved you because I loved you, and I'd made a promise. That's not an answer. I loved you because I loved you? Right? What is that? Guys, that is the most comforting thing in the world, actually. That God had, in eternity past, set his affections on you, believer, and it wasn't based on any way that you were going to hold up your end of the deal. It's an amazing thing to know that you've been loved by God from eternity past, having nothing to do with any works of your own. Because you know what? You can't mess that up. He loves you because he loves you. You ask, hey, why do you love me? I just do. It's like, that's comforting, right? And he doesn't change. His purposes don't change. It's so awesome. 
He loved you because he loved you. John Owen said this, We must remember the Father's kind thoughts toward us have been from all eternity. Let this be the first thought we have of the Father, that he is full of eternal love to us. Let our hearts and thoughts be filled with his love for us, even though many discouragements lie in our way. Isn't that awesome? That is the one thing that can hold you through life, is to know that he loves you because he loves you, and that's not going to change. And if you're a Christian, that's you, foreknown. And so who are you? You are the Father's foreknown one, the foreloved one, the one that the Father has set his affections on before he made the world. Secondly, you're an elect exile because the Holy Spirit set you apart. Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, it means to be set apart. Um, It's like in the Old Testament when there were certain priests that were set apart to that work, right? Or there were vessels in the temple that were set apart to that work. They weren't for common use. And what he's saying here is that we've been sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit set us apart. He set us apart at our conversion, right? So here's you. You're born here. You know, you don't know the Lord. You live in this way. The Father has already set his affection on you in eternity past. And then at some point in your life, the Father turns to the Holy Spirit and he says, get him. Get her. It's the time, right? He's let you walk in your own way. And you guys remember when this happened, when the Holy Spirit came and just brought you to life. All of a sudden, you started to have your heart stirred to seek God. Why did that happen? God was after you, right? We know that if we are seeking him, he must have sought us first. And, and so the Father had planned all this out. The Father had, had planned and sent, sorry, that's here, had sent the Son to the cross He died on the cross to pay that penalty before you were even born. And then the Holy Spirit at some point in your life came into your life and made you alive to him and stirred your heart to see God and convicted you of your sin. Do you guys remember that when you first got convicted of sin? Such a weird thing. Because there was all this stuff you used to do and you thought it was fine. You know, you just did what you wanted. You thought it was fine. Then all of a sudden you're like, I don't think this is right. And your friends are like, what do you mean? It's fun. And it's like, no, no, I'm really bothered by it. Why? I don't know. The Holy Spirit was starting to stir that in you and helped you to understand the gospel. Like, you had thought that, you know, all religions are basically the same, and then you start to go like, no, wait a minute, this is about Jesus' death, paying for my sin. He does it all. I just need to believe in him. All of a sudden that clicks, and you're like, why did that click? Holy Spirit, it come into your life. Um, it caused you to, he caused you to trust in him, that you would look back to the cross and what Jesus had done here, and that was something you trusted in. And then, and then the Holy Spirit gives this assurance, you know. It says, you're forgiven. You know, there's not just this, I believe and I trust in him, but the Holy Spirit comes back in your heart. He says, you are forgiven. I receive you. That's something that's just a precious gift. And then the Holy Spirit does something more. So he, he kind of, he captures us, right? He, he sets us apart. And then he continues to live with us. Notice that it says that sanctification is in the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit sets up this workshop around your life, right? He sets this workshop up, up around your life to transform you. It becomes, your life becomes an environment of transformation wherever you go because the Holy Spirit is there, right? And so that in every circumstance, in every sorrow, in every hardship, everything that life throws at you to destroy you, the Holy Spirit grabs and goes, okay, cool, thanks. Let me just chisel away that sin. And oh, cool, we can use that to make you more like Jesus, right? Isn't that amazing? Do you go through life and all this stuff's being thrown at you, all these hardships and stuff like that? And the Holy Spirit's just like, bing, bing, bing. And he's like, making you more like Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thing? So who are you? You're set apart by the Holy Spirit. Guys, this truth greatly helped me this week because I had a morning that I think was designed to break me. Have you guys ever had that? You ever had a, a day that you're like, this was actually designed to break me. Like, there's just no other explanation for this. 
Um, or maybe you had a week like that or a year like that, or maybe you're like, it hasn't been the best decade, right? Well, something happened where, you know, I've been meditating on this text, and I just had that visual of, like, I'm in the sanctification of the Spirit. Like, all these things, they aren't going to destroy me. The Holy Spirit's going to grab them all, and he's going to use them as a chisel and make me more like Christ. I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. It's going to be okay. I was like, I'm going to quit, you know, with my work. I can't quit. What am I, independently wealthy? Like, I got to stay here for the duration. I got to die in this truck, right? And so, but the Holy Spirit had reminded me this truth, and I was like, all right, you know, all these stuff. And I almost had a sense, you know, where you're like, oh, well, then bring it on. And they're like, no, I was just kidding, you know. But, but I did have a confidence, right? I had a confidence that if the more things were thrown, the Holy Spirit would use them. You are an elect exile also, check this out in verse 2, so that Jesus will receive your obedience. This is such a cool one. Take a look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And then notice the different words there, okay? According... In, and then what's this word? For. Purpose word, right? So what's the purpose in this whole elect exile thing? Is this just some fun thing that God does with us? No. What's the purpose? The purpose is for obedience to Jesus. And so what we have here is what the Father has planned, and the Spirit has, yeah, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit has um, empowered, now Jesus receives. This is really cool when you watch what the Trinity is doing. The Father uh, foresees you and plans to save you. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers that salvation. And then what happens? Your life's transformed so you give obedience to Jesus. Did you guys realize that your obedient life is actually a gift to Jesus from the Father and the Spirit? That's what this text says. The Father and the Spirit are doing all this stuff in your life to give your obedience to Jesus. Isn't that cool? That's just the way they are, too. They're always loving each other and serving each other and glorifying each other. They're always focused on each other. And, and you see in salvation here that, that the focus is on giving obedience to Jesus. Thinking, what a trip, you know, that your obedient life was intended by the Father and the Son from all eternity to give obedience and glory to Jesus. That's pretty crazy, right? I mean, you could spend a little time thinking about that. And, and this gives another reason to love Christ's commands. There's this thing, especially kind of in our circles, I think, where, well, it's everywhere. Where it's like to talk about commands or obedience, it's all bad language, right? Oh, we don't want to talk about the, that's the law. We don't do that. We don't do the law, you know? That's not what's here, guys. What's here is that our obedience is a gift from the Father and the Son to Jesus. We want to obey Jesus, don't we? We can say we want to obey Jesus and not be legalists, right? What did Jesus say about the law? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus is like, this is how I know you love me, when you keep my commandments. And we're like, well, we don't do that law thing. It's like, Jesus is like, well, this is the way you can show you love me if you want to do that, right? <laughs> like, show me love through that. So we want to obey Jesus, not to save ourselves. That would never work. We want to obey Jesus because he's loved us and saved us, and we want to love him back. It's a very natural thing in any relationship when somebody loves you so well that you want to love them back. The way we love them back is by our obedience. And so um, verse 2 says something just truly amazing is that that obedience that we want to give him didn't come from us. That love for Jesus and that obedience didn't come from us. It came from the Father's work and the Spirit's work so that we would love and obey Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing. So if you find yourself loving and obeying Jesus, what you can know is that you've gotten caught up in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that's been happening from all eternity. You've actually gotten caught up in that relationship. You actually have become a part of their love to one another. Whoa. I know. So who are you? You're Jesus' obedient one. 
But even as we do that, I know you guys are thinking, and I'm thinking that too. I think, who are you? You're Jesus obedient when you're like, well, right? I want to be. I desire to be. It's, it's a burden to me that I'm not, especially after you told me that that obedience and love is an inner Trinitarian gift to Jesus. Like, now I really feel some pressure, you know? Um, and we have to admit, guys, that our love and obedience is mixed at best, right? Did you say yours is mixed at best? The Book of Common Prayer says this, We have erred and strayed from his ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended his holy law. We have left undone the things which ought to have been done, and we have done things which ought not to be done. Right? Isn't that you? That's me. Especially as we see like the high value of our obedience and love to Jesus, and that it's this inner Trinitarian thing. We think, ah, oh, but the thing I'm giving him is so flawed. You know what? The Trinity took care of that too. Take a look at verse 2. For obedience to Jesus Christ and what? For sprinkling with his blood. Isn't that cool? For sprinkling. This has really cool, I'm rubbing my hands together in a creepy way, because this has really cool Old Testament roots too. Exodus 24. This scene is the coolest thing you should turn there. Exodus 24, verse 5. Um, Moses brings a lot of the people. They sacrifice an oxen. They take the blood and they like throw a bunch of it at the altar, you know. And then they take the rest of the blood and Moses gets this this um, hyssop, it's like a paintbrush, and dips it in the blood. And listen to this. Moses took half of the blood, and he put it in basins, and half of it he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the law, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And you know what the people said after they read all those laws to him? They said this, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, we will be obedient. Okay? They intended to. And Moses, look at what he did. And then Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, sprinkled it all over them. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Isn't that amazing? They promised more than they could do, and we all do too. We want to keep God's law. And then he, after they say, We'll do this, what does he do? He takes that blood. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine you guys are all here, and I read God's law, and you're like, We're inspired. We will do it. And I'm like, Good. And then I take blood, and I splatter it all over every one of you. That's what they did. And this blood splattering thing they had done multiple times. Guys, the sprinkling of blood reminds us that the Lord provides us ongoing cleansing of sin. This sprinkling is an ongoing word, right? It's not just that you were once forgiven and cleansed, but there's a sprinkling. There's an ongoing cleansing. This is what David asked for in Psalm 51. He said, purge me with hyssop. That was the thing they dipped in the blood. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow. Or it's the thing that John promised in 1 John 1.9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have that verse memorized? You need that verse memorized. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need this ongoing covering. We need this ongoing sprinkling of blood splattered on us to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And you know what's so cool is that in Jesus, that bowl never runs out. Like at some point, there's not more blood to sprinkle on all those people, right? And, and yet, in Jesus, we find that that sprinkling, that cleansing, it never runs out. Think of how precious this truth would have been to the author of this letter. This ongoing need for forgiveness. Was Peter a flawed man? I don't know why Peter got picked to have all of his flaws exposed, but he did, right? He was the one that counseled Jesus, you know, maybe you don't want to go to the cross. There's got to be some other option. He's speaking for Satan at that point. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, right? There was that. 
He denies Jesus. Jesus had told him, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. Seems like a pretty close-cut, never-coming-back deal, right? He denies Christ multiple times. And then, and then, years later, in Antioch, he compromises the gospel where he won't eat with Gentiles. And the whole point was he was totally compromising the gospel. Paul had to call him out in front of everybody. At each point of this, you would have thought, you're off the team, right? Like, at every single one of these, you're off the team, right? But at every step, there was more grace, there was more covering, there was more sprinkling with Christ's blood, and there is for you too if you're in Christ. Isn't that precious? Isn't that amazing? Who are you? You're sprinkled with Christ's blood. How's your week been, you know? Has has this week exposed your sin? Has this week left you feeling unclean like David? Do you have a stain on your conscience that you just can't shake? And sometimes we have those feelings of stain in our conscience, that, that guilt. And instead of going to Christ, we kind of try and rationalize it or just ignore it, hope it goes away. But maybe you have one that just won't go away. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, if we confess our sin, it says, He is faithful and just to forgive you. What's the faithful and just part? Why is he obligated? Like, it wouldn't be faithful or just if he didn't forgive you if you confess your sin. Why? Because, guys, a life has been given in your place and your sins have been covered. The debt's been paid. If you ask for it, it's applied. And he does that all the time for us. Now, I'm not saying that if you forgot to confess some sin or whatever, or you didn't even know you were sinning that way, he still sprinkles it. But we need to bring these things to him. Have you... And I want you to really think about this. Have you come to rest your soul in that? I don't mean that you grew up as a Christian and all that. I mean, have you come to rest your soul in the fact that you have been sprinkled with Christ's blood? Has your soul rested in that? The, the old uh, theologians talked about faith in three ways. They said there was a, a, a knowledge of the gospel, a belief in the gospel, and a trust in the gospel. And they use this example of a chair, right? So you could have intellectual understanding of the gospel, and just like you might go like, this is a chair, right? And you might have another level of belief in it. It's a little bit better. We say like, people could sit in these and not fall down. You could believe that the gospel saves people and not be saved. What do you need to do? You got to sit in the chair, right? And that's what I'm talking about. You got to rest your soul in the gospel. You got to come to a place where you actually sit down and rest your soul in the truth of what Jesus has done. Nothing of your own works. He says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And what's really weird, there's this whole, like, I've given you this whole, like, eternity past thing and, like, the Father doing things before he made anything. He's choosing and planning and doing all this stuff. And you're just like, whoa, right? How does that relate to what I just said? The, the wild thing is, is that the entrance into the kingdom, there's this, there's this doorway, and it says, whosoever will believe, right? See this thing, it says, whosoever will believe, or what Jesus said. He said, um, let me find it here. He said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out, okay? That's what he says in John 6. So the entrance into the kingdom, the gospel says, whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. And you walk through that by faith. And you know what's wild? When you look back, it says this about you. It says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. And so you found him, you took a hold of him, and you turn around and you realize, he was after you the whole time. Like, 
before time, <laughs> which is really trippy, right? Isn't that awesome? Guys, this is totally opposite of man-made religion. Man-made religion is man's pursuit of God. The gospel is God's pursuit of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that this is not like those Israelites that were sprinkled with blood. This is not for us to um, hold up our end of the deal, carry our end of the load. This is a gift, and we thank you for it. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to love and be obedient to your Son. Lord, as we look at this text and we see that that is your desire, that is the Spirit's desire, we pray, Lord, that you'd make that happen. We pray that the joy that we just felt in, in, in knowing that we are loved and accepted and, and chosen and pursued, Lord, that that joy would so stir our hearts that we would want to do anything that Christ has commanded. We love you so much, but it's just, it's just a reflection of your love for us. And it's just a tiny bit. Lord, make it more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And so this passage ends in, grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> and it has, right? Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And the Lord's Supper is like the Old Testament sprinkling of blood in that it is a visual reminder that a life's been given in your place and that your sins are covered. Uh, the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is not about our promise to God. It's about God's promise to us. I think even as we do the baptism a little bit later, we can get the wrong idea and think that baptism is about our promise to God. Baptism is about God's promise to us. And so is the Lord's Supper. And it's a sign and seal of that. And also, there's another thing that happens, and I don't feel like he can even adequately explain it, but God feeds us as we take the Lord's Supper. Um, the Israelites, as they wandered in the wilderness, before they got to the promised land, God gave them manna, right? And manna was a little sample of the abundance in the land. Right? As soon as they got the land, it was over, right? The Lord's Supper is like that. It's a sample, it's a taste of the communion we're going to have with Christ. It's a sample of the land's abundance. And as we take it, we feed on him, and we get strength, and we get joy, and we get the ability to keep on going. And so let's take it together, and let's worship the Lord together, guys, as those who have been loved, like First Peter talks about. Think about who you are. Think about what that says about him and his love for you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.